Hello and welcome to Extra Innings from the Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Denise Barron, and this is the first in a very special three-part series. It's sort of like summer school, but much, much more fun. So in addition to this podcast and the Ballpark Media Hub and the USAP blog, the U.S. Center does oh so much more, including public lectures with leading academics. Now, you usually have to be here in London to hear these, but with this series, we're bringing three of these lectures to you, wherever you might be. Okay, let's, um, let's go ahead and get, get started. I think probably will, some people will filter in. Uh, so here's the first lecture from Professor Neil Foley, entitled Anxiety, Fear, and National Identity, Anti-Immigration Politics and the Rise of Latino Power in the U.S. Welcome everyone here this evening. Uh, to introduce Professor Neil Foley, here's Professor Peter Trubowitz, director of the LSE U.S. Center. Uh, so my name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm the head of the International Relations Department here and the director of the U.S. Center, which is sponsoring um, tonight's talk. And it really is a, a pleasure to be able to introduce tonight's speaker, who in addition to being one of America's leading scholars of race, citizenship, and the American West is an old colleague and friend from the University of Texas at Austin. Today, Professor Neil Foley is the Robert H. and Nancy Dedman Chair in International in History at um, uh, Southern Methodist University and the co-director of the Clements Center uh, for Southwest Studies at, at SMU. He's the author of um, five books on American culture, politics, history, They've won numerous prizes, including the American Historical Association's uh, most prestigious award, the Frederick Jackson Turner Book Prize, for his seminal, The White Scourge, Mexicans, Blacks, and Poor Whites in Texas. His latest book, Mexicans and the Making of America with Harvard, was a choice outstanding academic title in 2015 and a nominee for the Pulitzer Prize in history in the same year. By way of background, uh, Neil got his uh, BA at uh, UVA, University of Virginia. Um, two MAs, one from Georgetown, another from University of Michigan, where he went on to do his PhD. He's won a lot of fellowships at Guggenheim, an NEH, a Woodrow Wilson, a Fulbright, an ACLS, it's like an alphabet soup, um, and has been a fellow at the Center, um, I guess you turned it down, right? Center for Advanced Study at uh, Behavioral Sciences at, at Stanford. It wasn't, wasn't good enough. Um, <laughs> over the course of his career, he's lectured, um, he's taught, you know, in many different places around the world, Europe, uh, Latin America, Asia, and I think most impressively, um, he's taught on, uh, on the Navy's Sixth Fleet. Um, he's actually taught on a couple of aircraft carriers. He did that for two years, right? Um, and, uh, and he's taught on topics that range from uh, civil rights to labor to immigration, which is the subject of tonight's lecture, Anxiety, Fear, and National Identity, Anti-Immigration Politics, and the Rise of 
Latino power in the United States. The hashtag, the suggested hashtag for tonight is uh, LSE US Latino. If you haven't already, please turn your phones to uh, silent mode. And please join me in welcoming Professor Neil Foley to the LSE. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for that uh, generous introduction, Peter. I wrote it myself. Um, and um, uh, seriously, though, thank you for inviting me to come to LSE and to give this talk. And I especially want to thank uh, Stephanie Frey and Sophie Donzelman for getting me here in one piece and all of you for, for being here this evening. I'm going to get right to it because this is a, um, like a 40, 45 minute lecture with tons of slides. Uh, and so the title of my talk, um, as it indicates, I think, <clears throat> I want to suggest that the fear many Americans have of immigrants today, both legal and illegal, has less to do with economics and the fear that they take our jobs um, but rather with genuine cultural anxieties that the U.S. is being inva invaded by people um, who, who will, by their sheer numbers, uh, change America to be more like them than they like us. Okay, so many Americans today are acutely aware uh, that the minority Americans will outnumber non-Hispanic whites by mid-century, if not before, uh, when Latinos, blacks, and Asians will form the majority of the U.S. population. Immigration, of course, has been the driving force behind the demographic changes of the last 50 years, especially immigration from Mexico and more recently from Central America. The dramatic increase in the Hispanic population began after the enactment of the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, when Latinos constituted only 4% of the population of the United States, or less than half of the population of African Americans. A short time later, the media dubbed the 1980s the Decade of the Hispanic when demographers began speculating that at some point in the 21st century, whites would no longer be a majority. And that demographic conjecture became front cover news in 1990 when Time magazine uh, first posed the question that has become a major concern of many Americans today. And that is, what will the US be like when whites are no longer the majority? Okay. And now I'm not going to attempt to answer the question posed by Time Magazine, um, because the only answer to that question is, who knows what the U.S. will be like when whites constitute less than 50% of the population. Um, but it does raise questions about what it will mean to be American when being white or of European descent is no longer the touchstone of Americanness. As the demographic decline of whites Americans continues apace in the coming decades, Will a less white America be less racially, economically divided, or more so? Whatever else we can say about America at mid-century, the main point of time cover story is indisputable, namely that the browning of America will alter everything from politics and education to industry and values and culture, and it is irreversibly the America to come. This demographic fact, the irreversible reality of the browning of America, is what many Americans, especially older white Americans, <coughs> fear the most. It's a frightening prospect for many whites to think of themselves as minority population. And many believe the new face of America does not bode well for them. The new face of America, the Time Magazine heralded in 1993 cover story, showed what a computer-generated 
multiracial face might look like. Take a good look at this woman, the article enjoys us. She was created by a computer from a mix of several races. What you see is a remarkable preview of the new face of America. This is all news in 1993, right? The changing demographics, okay? Yet despite decades of media affirmation of the so-called salad bowl and the cultural mosaic of the United States that displaced the metaphor of the melting pot of the pre-World War II era, many Americans today fear that immigrants don't assimilate into American mainstream culture, and that they threaten America's core values. Much of the anti-immigration rhetoric after 9-11, for example, was considered extreme at the time, but it now sounds fairly mainstream. As the rhetoric of Donald Trump and his supporters made clear during the recent presidential campaign in which he denounced Mexican immigrants as rapists and criminals and promised to build a 2,000-mile wall on the border to keep them out. Here are some of the examples of anti-immigrant political rhetoric just in the last two decades, or three. Patrick Buchanan wrote a book called Death of the West, How Dying Populations and Immigrant Invasions Imperil Our Country and Civilization. He writes, with their own radio and TV stations, Mexican-Americans are creating an Hispanic culture separate and apart from America's larger culture. They are becoming a nation within a nation. Now, for those of you who don't know, Patrick Buchanan was an advisor to President Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan, and was a candidate for the Republican presidential nomination in 1992 and again in 1996. He's a very well-known Republican from the 90s whose views on immigration were considered extreme. Those views are mainstream today. Tom Tancredo, a former Republican congressman and candidate for the Republican presidential nomination in 2008, had this to say, we are committing cultural suicide. The barbarians at the gate will only need to give us a slight push, and the emaciated body of Western civilization will collapse into a heap. Uh, he has no future as an historian um, or a political scientist. Uh, the Latino essay and journalist Richard Rodriguez suggested that the sinister Trojan horse trope be replaced with a Trojan burrito, and I'm all for that. And lastly, there's President Donald Trump, who announced his candidacy for president in June 2015, by stereotyping Mexican immigrants as rapists, etc., a strategy deployed by immigration restrictionists going back to the 1920s. But it's not just ethno-nationalist politicians who believe that America is committing cultural suicide. The late Harvard political scientist Samuel Huntington had this to say in a controversial article published in Foreign Affairs magazine in 2004. The persistent flow, inflow of Hispanic immigrants threatens to divide the United States into two peoples, two cultures, and two languages. Unlike past immigrant groups, Mexicans and other Latinos have not assimilated into mainstream U.S. culture, forming instead their own political and linguistic enclaves and rejecting the Anglo-Protestant values that built the American dream. The United States ignores this challenge at its peril. Huntington offers these and other evidence-free generalizations about Mexicans and other Latinos that from an historian's point of view seem more like fake political science. He states, for example, that Mexican and Latino groups don't assimilate into mainstream culture, that they don't learn English, and that they reject the Anglo-Protestant values that built the American dream. The fact is that Mexicans have been assimilating into mainstream culture since the incorporation of the U.S. Southwest, or Northern Mexico, uh, after the U.S.-Mexico War in 1848. Generations of U.S.-born Mexican offspring, like myself, speak fluent English, 
as have generations of U.S.-born offsprings of immigrants from Europe and Asia, from the Caribbean and from other parts of Latin America. As one linguist put it, making English the official language of the United States is about as urgently called for as making hot dogs the official, uh, official food of baseball games. We don't have to unpack what Huntington means by mainstream American culture, but clearly it's not Harvard Yard, nor is it the proverbial city on a hill. Perhaps most mystifying of all, Huntington cites hard work as the signature Anglo-Protestant value that built the American dream. Now, Anglo-Protestants are no doubt hardworking, but I doubt that they discovered hard work or that they are the only Americans who value it. Yet the idea persists, going back to America's founding fathers, that Anglo-Americans are what makes America great. I'm only going to talk about one founding father, Benjamin Franklin, um, who had this to say in the mid-18th century about German immigrants. Why should Pennsylvania, founded by the English, become a colony of German aliens who will never adopt our language or customs any more than they can acquire our complexion? He also said, the number of purely white people in the world is proportionally very small. All Africa is black or tawny. Also, Asia um, is chiefly tawny. And America, exclusive of the newcomers, wholly tawny. End quote. Well, the newcomers, of course, were the British settlers. Franklin seemed preoccupied with tawny-complected peoples as, and their unsuitability for settlement in the British colonies. Africans, Asians, and American Indians were basically brown people, tawny people, to use his expression, and not to be confused with swarthy people, the word that Franklin used to describe Europeans. Spaniards, Italians, French, Russians, and Swedes, he wrote, are generally what we call a swarthy complexion, as are also the Germans, except for the Saxons, who, with the English, make the principal body of white people on the face of the earth. In Franklin's view, only the English and the Saxons can claim whiteness as both a complexion and a marker of superior civilization. He concludes his meditation on color with a, with a plea to keep the English colonies white. Why should we darken America's people? Why increase the sons of Africa by planting them in America, where we have so fair an opportunity by excluding all blacks and tawnies and increasing the lovely white? The point of this is not to point my finger at some old white dude from the 18th century and you know, resurrect his racist, racialized and racial views, but to show that those views were widespread among the founding fathers. I can't go into all the quotes from all of them. Um, but it became embedded in the first, law pass, first laws passed by the first Congress of the United States in 1790, and that was the Naturalization Law of 1790 which limited natural, naturalized citizenship only to free white persons. The law was passed to prevent American Indian slaves and free blacks from becoming citizens. And here we're not even talking about immigrants. We're talking about the free blacks amongst them, the Native Americans, indigenous to North America, right? Um, and, uh, you know, slaves, free blacks and slaves as well, uh, could not become citizens. They could not be part of the polity of the United States of America, uh, even though they may have been born in the colonies. And the free white person provision for naturalization was not repealed until 1952. Um, the Immigration and Nationality Act, also known as the McCarran-Walter Act, 
And if you want to know why 1952 as opposed to any other year, uh, the answer to that is Adolf Hitler, and you can kind of uh, put two and two together to figure that one out. The racial qualification as a basis for citizenship formed uh, the foundation of our immigration laws from the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 all the way up until 1965. Most of you are familiar with the Chinese Exclusion Act, the Gentlemen's Agreement to Limit Immigration from Japan. But very important is the 1924 National Origins Quota Act, which restricted immigrants to the United States from, uh, from Southern and Eastern Europe as the wrong kind of white people. Okay? Um, these were the Jews, the Poles, the Slavic peoples, right? Uh, from what we call Eastern Europe, right? And Southern Europe, principally Greeks and Italians and so forth. Um, the, the good uh, Europeans were the ones from uh, Western and Northern Europe, right? Um, but it did something else. It made it law that banned any and all immigrant groups that were ineligible for citizenship. Remember, that from the 1790 law up until 1952, if you were ineligible for citizenship, after 1924, you couldn't even immigrate into the United States. So the law simply said, 1924, are you white? If yes, you can come in. If you're white from Eastern Europe, we got restrictions. But if you're not white, i.e. you're black or Asian, you can't come in. Asians could not immigrate to the United States from 1924 until 1965, when that racial origins race um, uh, uh, clause was eliminated, okay? Now, of course, I'm digressing for a second here, but what about brown people, Mexicans, Latin Americans, Syrians, Turks, people who weren't black or Asian, but weren't kind of white in the European way whites were, right? They were kind of mixed race, dark-skinned. Um, and that's a whole other story. We'll have to wait for another day for that one. Um, Anti-immigration rhetoric after 1965 is less explicitly racial, although it harkens back to Benjamin Franklin's notion that certain immigrant groups cannot be expected to become bona fide Americans. One has only to examine some of the following best-selling books that express these nativist and xenophobic views. Alien Nation written by a British-born American, a naturalized American, wrote in 1995 a best-selling book, still read today, called Alienation, Common Sense About American's Immigration Disaster. Bottom line, he agrees with Franklin. You know, the only bona fide Americans who make good Americans are white Americans. But he would include the swarthy Germans and the swarthy Swedes. I don't know if you've ever met a swarthy Swede, but I have not. And this is what he wrote in his book. America will become a freak among the world's nations because of the unprecedented demographic mutation it is inflicting on itself with the influx of non-whites who are destroying America. Okay? Ann Coulter, many of you have heard of her, a conservative political commentator, recently published a book in 2015, just uh, two weeks before the uh, um, uh, elections, uh, primaries, um, Adios America, the left's plan to turn the country into a third world hellhole. A lot of nuance in that title. Um, incidentally, if you're wondering where Donald Trump got the idea that Mexicans are rapists, he got it from this book, which hit the bookstores two weeks before Trump announced his candidacy for the presidency in June of 2015, and he called this book a great read, suggesting, contrary to what you may believe, he's actually read a book. 
Um, Coulter denounces immigrants from Latin America because of their, quote, Latin American rape culture, end quote. On page 191, she writes, the rape of little girls isn't even considered a crime in Latino culture, end quote. Bet you didn't know that. Much like Trump's Twitter feed, she provides no evidence for her assertions. Best-selling book in the United States. Shortly after 9-11, former GOP presidential advisor Patrick Buchanan, whom you've already heard of, wrote The Death of the West. His main concern is the declining population of white Americans and what eugenicists a century ago called the rising tide of color. I'll come back to the declining population of whites in, uh, later in the talk. Last year, self-described white-wing activist Lauren Southern, I'd never heard of her until I read her book, I think she's an Ann Coulter wannabe, wrote Barbarians in 2016, just last year, not even 12 months ago it came out, How Baby Boomers, Immigrants, and Islam Screwed My Generation. I put this up there because she adds Islam to Mexicans, and that's kind of where we're at now. It's kind of nicely alliterative. Mex Mexicans and Muslims are like persona non gratis, okay? Now... Let's look at the rapid increase in the Hispanic population since 1970. That was uh, and is a driving force behind the fear and anxiety expressed by these books. This slide shows um, that the Hispanic population has increased sixfold since 1970, from, although this, this slide actually begins with uh, 1980. In 1970, the population of, Mex of Hispanics, not just Mexicans, but all Hispanics, was 4.7%. Today, it's 18%, uh, an increase of almost 600%. Um, by comparison, the U.S. population overall has grown 56% over the same period. Now, the next set of slides, about four or five of them, show the dramatic increase in immigration from Mexico since 1960. Because right, there was no fear back in the 60s. I mean, some of you, uh, I think, have been around from the 60s can recall that there was no discussion of Hispanics or Latinos in the 60s. This was the dec decade that was absolutely dominated in the media by three things. The African-American Civil Rights Movement, the anti-war movement in Vietnam, and sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which is the page <laughs> I used to read. Now, the, um, in 1960... Immigrants from Mexico were 5.9%. I just want to call your attention to this little sliver of the pizza over here. It's not very big. It's certainly not very threatening looking. The three largest groups in descending order of immigrants were Italians, Germans, and Canadians. Look at the size of, of their slides. They were even more immigrants from the UK, the Soviet Union, and Poland than from Mexico. So no, people weren't talking about the Mexican invasion in 1960. Okay. Now we go to the next slide, 1970, and they move up to 7.9%, um, and they now outnumber immigrants from the UK, the Soviet Union, and Poland, but they're still behind Italy, Germany, and Canada. Not much of a threat there either. Now, a lot more came in the 1970s, which is why they declared, the media declared that in 1980, that 1980 was going to be the decade of the Hispanic. Okay. So by 1980, after the 70s were over, their, their percentage of the immigrant population doubled to almost to 15, well, almost doubled to 15.6%, right? and, um, and became the largest single group of immigrants, outnumbering the combined number of immigrants from Italy and Germany. Okay? So it's becoming a significant wedge there of the pie. 
1990, they were an astonishing 22%, the same percentage as the combined percentages of German-Italian immigrants in the 1960s. Also, Filipinos and Koreans enter the mix, representing the rapidly growing Asian immigrant population since the 1965 law uh, uh, opened the, the uh, immigration to um, family preferences, family reunification. 2000, immigration from Mexico during those boom years of the 90s increased to 29.5%, okay? Exceeding the combined percentage of all other nine major immigrant groups. All that gray over here, the others are immigrants from all over the world, but whose, whose percentage was so small, it doesn't warrant, uh, you know, we might have 10, or maybe a couple hundred immigrants from Zimbabwe or a couple hundred from, from Myanmar or something like this, but, they're, but they add up to a significant percentage. Okay, but nobody was concerned about one national origin group invading the United States as they were starting to think that Mexico was. And after all, we shared a 2,000-mile border with Mexico, so it was like this is not some spigot that you could turn off very easily without fortifying your border. Okay? Now, in 2010, immigration from Mexico drops just two-tenths of a point to 29.3, okay? in part because of the increased border security after 9-11, uh, including the building of a 700-mile uh, fence beginning in 2006, and the decline in new construction jobs as a result of the so-called Great Recession of 2008. What explains the surge in immigration from Mexico and other countries from Latin America and Asia was, as I've already mentioned, immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965. So it behooves us to take a closer look at that. It was abolished, it abolished the 1924 National Origins Quota Act, which eliminated national origin, race, or ancestry as a basis for immigration to the United States and replaced it with a system of quotas and preferences. Priority was given to family reunification and the unintended consequence of this family reunification preference was that it led to gradual, ever-increasing chain migration of family members, mainly from Asia and Latin America, and especially Mexico. Think about this for a second. If you're Asian, you haven't been able to immigrate to this country since 1924, and all of a sudden, uh, your U.S.-born children are citizens, of course, because of the 14th Amendment in our country. If you're born in the United States, you're a citizen. So you might have three or four generations of Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans and so forth who decide they want to bring some relatives over from China and Japan or um, from India or right from the so-called Asia Bar Zone. They started doing that, okay? And of course, um, Mexicans had so many families that they could bring over that all of a sudden we started to see not immigration from Europe, but immigration from Asia and Mexico. Um, it is important to note, however, that most of the growth of the Latino or Hispanic population since 2010 has been driven by birth rates rather than immigration. A rate of two children per, per child-bearing woman, usually ages 14 to 44, um, is considered the replacement rate for uh, a population. As you can see, whites and Asians with birth rates of 1.8 are not reproducing themselves. Okay? What that means is, even if there is no more immigration whatsoever, right, the white population is declining. Right? So um, the decline in the percentage of the white population was driven by the high percentage of immigration in decades past. But now their actual numbers are declining. 
This is not unlike what's happening in Germany and Japan and other countries that have uh, negative birth rates or sub-replacement birth rates. Note also that the total fertility rate for Hispanic women in the United States, up here, um, see if I can get this thing to work, it's 2.4. That compares with 2.2 for moms in Mexico. Most Americans today, if this were a quiz question, they would say that Mexican women were hyper-fertile and had very, very high birth rates compared to American women, and they would be absolutely wrong. And this has been true for a while, as I will show in the next slide. Ten years ago, on CNN, Lou Dobbs and other news commentators, many of you will remember this, continued to insist against all evidence, easily accessible evidence, that pregnant Mexican immigrant women were crossing the border in droves to drop anchor babies, right? So-called because U.S.-born citizens, they could grow up and sponsor their parents and siblings and grandparents to immigrate under the family reunification provision of the 1965 Act. But in fact, Mexico's fertility rate, as I have shown, has been in a free fall from a high of almost seven children per woman in 1960 to an average of two children today. You can see that free fall in this, in this slide here, a high of almost seven children in 1960, and down here projected to be about two in 2020, just about 2.2 now. This is because of urbanization, um, uh, the decline in fertility rates in Mexico and other more economically developed countries all share these three similarities, uh, urbanization and um, uh, uh, today, the percent of Mexico's urban population is almost identical to that of the United States. Of course, the use of contraception in Mexico is about the same in the U.S. and Europe, which is obviously a major factor in decreased fertility rates. And so, too, is the growing participation of women in the workforce, which has led many Mexican women to delay or decide against having children uh, or not to have as many. The increase in immigration from Mexico and the declining birth rates of whites have resulted in demographic changes absolutely unprecedented in U.S. history. And that fact alone has stoked many of the fears and anxieties that Americans share. And in this next slide, I want to just show you some uh, key demographic elements underlying these American fears. Whites are a minority in four states now, California, Texas, New Mexico, and Hawaii, as well as the District of Columbia. Minority births continue to outnumber white births since 2013. Non-white students now outnumber white students in U.S. public schools across the nation from kindergarten through grade 12. If you really want to see the changing face of America, go to a, an elementary school in the United States. If you think they look diverse and multicultural and all of that in the malls, go look at the babies, go look at the kids because that is the future face of America, and it is irreversible. Births outnumber deaths for all ethnic and racial groups, except for non-Hispanic whites, whose population is actually declining. You know, in 1960, the population of the U.S. was 84% white. Right, so think of an older American who, like me, a baby boomer, who can remember the 1960s and think, God, those were the days, right? Everybody was white or black. And the only, the only time you would even think of a brown person is if you've ever visited four, one of four states, California, Arizona, New Mexico, or Texas, right? Or you'd been to 
uh, South uh, Florida and, and seen a few Cubans, or you've been in New York and, and, and seen some Puerto Ricans on the subway, or you've been to Chicago or Detroit. So there were, but everywhere else, you were not likely to run into a Latino. You might see him at a distance, but you certainly probably didn't have any interactions with him, and you didn't even know what a taco was, because Taco Bell did not hit the American scene until the, the 60s, and, and Fritos were new, and they had to, they had to, uh, they had to advertise Fritos on television with the Frito Bandito. It was a little pudgy uh, guy with a bolero of a, a strap of bullets and, and pistol who used to steal corn chips from Anglo-Americans. Um, because they're criminals, right? They steal for a living, right? So they're not going to pay for corn chips. Um, I'll put this in perspective by telling you a little personal story. When I began my career at the University of Texas at Austin in 1991 as a newly minted PhD and assistant professor of history, white students made up 78% of the 50,000 large student body. Now, it's overwhelmingly white, even though Texas is not, you know, and that, uh, at that time was not 78% white. 20 years later in 2011, which is just six years ago, they made up 46% of that student body which has remained stable at 50,000, and probably because that's the, that's the, the sort of the standard for UT Austin is to stay at 50,000, más o menos. And that's much like the percentage of this total state of the population, right? Because Latinos are 38% of the state of Texas, as they are 38% of the state of uh, California. They're neck and neck for, for uh, the leading states for for both numbers and percentages. Actually, not percentages, because New Mexico is like 46% Latino. And the whites there have been a minority since the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. So. This is part two, the Browning of America, irreversibly the America to come, as uh, uh, Time Magazine claimed. Um, as I mentioned, Hispanics constitute 18% uh, of the population today. They're projected to increase to 29%. The U.S. has the second largest population of Hispanics in the entire world. Only Mexico at 120 million people exceeds the U.S. Hispanic population. Put another way, there are more Spanish-speaking people in the U.S. than there are in Spain. Right? Now, the following slides will show the growing distribution of Latinos in all regions of the U.S. from 1980 to 2006. What I want you to do is actually see how this is happening, not just with charts that pie charts that show immigrants, now you're going to be seeing the entire Hispanic population, where they are and how they've grown by looking at, you know, color charts uh, from maps, color uh, maps from 1980 to 2006. I wanted the census to bring this up to date, but they said that uh, because of layoffs and staff reductions, they can't do another, uh, bring it up to 2017 for me. So I wasn't too happy about that, but... It's the way things are in the U.S., okay? But before we do that, I wanted you to see this. This is, um, this slide maps the 1848 border between the United States and Mexico onto the census map of 2000 to illustrate that the vast majority of Mexican origin Hispanics, both citizens and immigrants, continue to live in that region that once belonged to Mexico, which is all of this. this northern half of Mexico that was seized in 1848, and namely the states of California, Nevada, Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, Texas, and parts of Wyoming, Colorado, Kansas, and Oklahoma. That is a large chunk of real estate. 
And for those of you who grew up playing Monopoly as I did, you want to put houses and hotels on all of those states because they're fast-growing states, okay, just like they are in the Nuevo New South or the New New South. The Immigration Control and Reform Act of 1986, enacted during Ronald Reagan's second term in office, sought to address the problem of illegal immigration coming up from this border, when the border dropped in 1848, um, it didn't act like a barrier, especially <coughs> since there's nothing here but desert and nothing here but a very shallow river called the Rio Grande that kind of goes up to Colorado at this point. So there wasn't really any natural way to separate the two countries um, uh, with a natural barrier. Um, and this act provided sanctions against employers who knowingly hired undocumented workers. And of course, all employers said that I didn't know that they were undocumented because they all presented fake documents, which is, was a sort of a, uh, a transaction between undocumented and their employers with a nod and a wink. You know, the uh, Social Security card that's fake goes into the file cabinet, and when ICE comes by and says, you've got your whole workforce is undocumented, I said, hey, I just get their, I just look at their documents, and it's not my job to verify whether they're authentic or not. That's the federal government's job. So go away. So very few people uh, were sanctioned as a result of that, very few employers. The law also provided amnesty and a path to citizenship for over three million undocumented immigrants already living in the United States. Imagine that. Ronald Reagan, you know, the hero of the Republican Party, not only talked about amnesty, he supported it. You can't even use the A word today. Right? Amnesty is like, it's unspeakable. It's a taboo. Right? Path to citizenship was supposed to replace amnesty, and now that's taboo. You cannot talk about it. The only thing you can say now is they're criminals. They came across the border unlawfully, and they need to be punished. Not just deported, but punished. Right? Put in detentions, orange jumpsuits, wristbands, the whole bit. Right? Um, my daughter was uh, not arrested, detained in Mexico. We lived there for a year in Mexico City. Uh, we were roommates. She was 16, going to high school, and I was doing research at uh, the archives there. And uh, they said her visa had expired, which it had. And uh, did they put her in an orange jumpsuit and haul her off to some detention center? No, they said, you have to pay a $300 fine. She said, you mean pesos? I mean, this is Mexico, right? Oh, no, U.S. dollars. So she calls me up. She's at the border trying to get in the United States in Mexico City. She says, you know, Papi, my, they, wanna, they want me to pay $300. You know, I don't have $300. And I said, don't worry about it. Um, ask them if they'll accept $150. So she did, and they said, yeah, that'll be fine. <laughs> so, you know, I sent her $150, and after about four or five hours, she was released. No big deal. It's a civil offense, just like it is in the United States. It's a civil offense. That was the problem. How do you, how do you put people in detention centers for basically a speeding ticket? Right? Well, the way you do is you say it's not just a civil offense anymore. It's a felony offense, and we'll get to that in just a second. The law failed to stop immigration from Mexico, as the following slides illustrate. This is 1980, folks. As you can see, the majority of Mexican-Americans beginning the decade of Hispanics reside in the region that belonged to Mexico. Cubans arrived in southern Florida after 1959, when Fidel Castro withdrew, uh, overthrew President Fulgencia Batista and established a revolutionary socialist state, and Puerto Ricans began arriving uh, in the U.S. soon after the 19, uh, 1998 
I'm sorry, the 1898 war with Spain when the island became a colony of the United States. But the bulk of the migration to the mainland occurred in 1950s and 1960s where they settled mainly in New York and Chicago. And outside of the Southwest, outside of Florida, outside of the upper Midwest, outside of New York, New Jersey, very, very, very few Latinos, right? This is what we call flyover America, right? This is your Midlands, okay? This is the Leavers, right? Now look, 1990, you see what's happening? Okay, got to You got to kind of look wide angle here. You got to see Alaska up here. You got to see Hawaii here. You got to notice that the blue is just, you know, the purple is purple. That's not going to change. But you're going to see that they're going up here and they're moving out, right? They're spreading. Okay, I'm using the language of, you know, epidemiology here, right? And then uh, you can see it here. They're moving north. Oh my God! Oh my God! Look what happened to the south. Where did that? What? What? Wait a second. What is this? This is 1990. 2000. What state is that? What state is that? North America. That is North Carolina. What are they doing in North Carolina? My God, there's hardly a county that doesn't have at least 5% or 2.4%. Or, or well, no, 2.5 to 5% of Latinos. And many of them much darker, 10 to 24%. All over the South, this is North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas. What is going on here? The upper Midwest, oh my God. What we've got here, folks, is an invasion of flyover America, where they never were before. But they always go where the jobs are, so what are they doing there? What are they doing in Alaska? Look, there's hardly anybody there before. <laughs> look at... Look at Okay, so what do they do in Alaska? Any guesses? I mean, I already know. I figured out that in Hawaii they're going there surfing, right? Because that's what you do in Hawaii. And then I realized, no, they're going there to work. Because that's what Mexicans do. That's what my grandparents did. That's what I assumed they were doing there. And I finds out when you Google it, yeah, they're picking pineapples, right? Pineapple plantation. What do they do in Alaska? Well, right, and fisheries, salmon fisheries, doing all that. I mean, you know, working in a fish factory, it's like working in a meat packing plant, stuff like that. They do all the, I was told not to use any foul languages, this is being um, recorded, but they do all the shiza work, um, you know, that nobody else wants to do. Okay? That's not a bad word because it's in German. <laughs> um, so 2000, 2006, where it stopped, but you get the idea. If I, if I were to go to 2017 with this, it's just going to get darker. And then if you overlay Asian Americans and Asian origin people, and we're not just talking about Japanese and Chinese, which are sort of our, sort of our founding you know, Asians, right, from the 1970s. You're talking about Hmong and Vietnamese and South Asian Indians. These are all post-World War II invasions, right? This whole map is starting to look a little bit too purple and blue, right? It's just not looking white enough, okay? This is kind of what I'm trying to get at here with this anxiety and fear thing, right? Because everybody's got, I mean, I was looking at the U.S. Senate, right? And they, they have all these blogs. Here. It was a class thing in the last election. No, it was a race thing. You know, it was this, it was that, it was that. It's a lot of things. It's kind of complicated. So I had to choose what my argument's going to be. My argument is when white people are saying they take our jobs, it's like, no, I don't think so. They're taking your culture. They're taking your country, right? That's what they're thinking, you know? How can we still be America? 
if we're not white anymore, okay, or if we're minority, okay? I just want you to see this, uh, the fact that uh, the South here saw 31% increase in the Hispanic population in just six years compared to an overall increase of just 8.5% for the total population of all these states. United States Census include, these are the five regions of the United States Census, and they always include Texas in there with the South. A lot of the uh, Texans don't like that because it aligns them with, you know, impoverished post-Civil War sharecropping and, you know, poor white people with rickets and bad teeth and all of that. They like to look at, you know, we are, you know, long Marlboro man cowboys, you know, we, we defeat the Alamo. Uh, we want you to see images of us, you know, with longhorns, you know, UT Austin, the longhorns, right? And you're not going to see, like, you know, uh, East Texas University sharecroppers, right? That's not going to be the right image that they want to reject. All right, so where are we? Getting close to the end here. These are the five top states of Hispanic population by size. No surprise here. California, Texas, Florida, New York, Illinois. They also happen to be the top five states top biggest states in the United States of America. The only thing that you would have to flip are these two, right? Right, because New York is number three, not Florida. But in terms of the percentage of the state that's Latino, um, uh, New York is four, Florida is third, Texas is second, and California. These two are actually tied for first, although California has more uh, Latinos. It's a bigger state with bigger, bigger numbers, right? But also, what do we know about these states, right? Um, What slide is this? Okay. What we know is that these five states alone account for 171 electoral votes in the Electoral College, or 63% of the 270 needed to elect the president. You can't win the presidency without at least some of these states, if not most of them. Right? Now, we all know that Latinos had nothing to do with Texas and California because California was overwhelmingly blue long before the Trump election, right? It's been blue since 1994. Right? We'll get to that in just a second, too. In Texas, it was red, although it's trending blue. And I, we can talk about that in the Q&A. We're not going to have time for me to go through all those slides. Um, and now, um, a quick look at, the, if we disaggregate Latinos, what you're going to see, and this is basically the point of this slide, is that Mexicans are basically two-thirds of all of the 58 million Latinos in the United States. So the point that uh, I'm trying to make here is that um, when the media talks about the Latinization of the United States or the browning of America, it's largely talking about Mexican origin Latinos. I mean, they're not saying, oh, my God, we've got to do something about all those Uruguayans coming into our country. Uh, and Puerto Ricans are not immigrants. They're U.S. citizens, right? And Cubans, I mean, you know, come on, they're down in Dade County, Florida, and Yes, they rule Florida, but so what? Um, you know, the other 49 states, the white folks can claim those. But um, Mexicans, they're like a demographic tsunami since 1965, and that's very worrisome to a lot of people. Before turning to anti-immigrant backlash since World War II, beginning with Operation Wet back in 1954, let's briefly look at the main cycles of nativism. I'm not going to go into all of these at all. Just to list them, right, just so you can see that there's nothing new under the sun, but when we get down to the bottom, the 1790s anti-German, this is the, you know, the Benjamin Franklin, you know, we, we have to keep America not tawny and not swarthy. The mid-1850s, the Know Nothing Party was basically anti-Irish and Catholics. 1870s, 80s, anti-Chinese, 1970, anti-Eastern European, Red Scare, the 
worried that Bolsheviks were coming. 1920s was a big era of immigration restriction, the whole decade. It's basically Eastern and Southern Europe. They were not able to restrict immigration from the Western Hemisphere because big business absolutely refused to allow restriction on Mexican immigration at all. They needed Mexican labor, so they settled for just saying no, uh, very, very small quotas for Italian, Polish, Jews, um, no, uh, um, um, no Mexicans. I shouldn't have put that in there for... They, they, they were, no, actually, the, they were nativists against Mexicans, except they weren't excluded. They, they could still come in, so that's right. Uh, Asians. 1942, of course, is Japanese internment. Uh, 1950s is anti-Mexican anti Operation went back. Uh, the 60s was a quiet time, very little immigration during the 60s, as you saw from the slide at the beginning of this talk. 1970 to, to, to the present, I would say, is anti-Mexican, okay, uh, without any, any breathing space or any uh, reprieve, okay. Uh, 1970 to 2000 is anti-Mexican, IRCA was the uh, Immigration Reform and Control Act, that was what, you know, the Reagan thing, and that was because of the Mexicans coming in that we had this thing passed in 1986. And then 9-11 um, uh, uh, to 2000, uh, 9-11-2001 to the present is, I add to that, uh, anti-Middle uh, East, uh, anti-Mexican, of course, anti-Muslim, which I forgot to put the Muslim in there, uh, although it's in my notes. All right. Here are the major backlash periods. 1954, 1994, 2000, there's a whole bunch of them, right, practically every year. But we're only going to mention three of these uh, uh, because there's just, too much to say about them, but they will give you a very good idea um, of the power of these nativist backlashes. Now, it's not just politicians talking about the barbarians at the gate. Those politicians have been doing things about it, okay? As many of you know, during World War II, the U.S.-Mexico enacted a bilateral emergency labor program called the Bracero Program, which brought hundreds of thousands of temporary workers to work in agriculture, prompting President Eisenhower to authorize Operation Wetback, which was a quasi-military uh, operation to round up and deport over a million ex-braceros. Uh, over 4.5 million braceros came to the United States between 1942 and 1964 when the program was terminated. Remember, they're not immigrants, they're contract workers, guest workers. Many of them did not return to Mexico, proving the truth of the saying that there's nothing more permanent than temporary workers. Now I want to quickly look at three major anti-American backlashes before we conclude. Proposition 187, Save Our State in California, 1994. California's in a recession. The aerospace industry is, is tanking, and they're starting to blame Mexicans. They take our jobs. And this, this uh, referendum sought to bar undocumented immigrants from public education, K through 16, from non-emergency health care, and receiving any type of state social services. And it also required health providers and school officials to report suspected undocumented immigrants to the Immigration and Naturalization, uh, Naturalization Service, now called Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or better known as ICE. I love that metaphor, that uh, acronym ICE, because, you know, it's just, it just feels right. ICE comes knocking at your door at 4 in the morning and hauls you off to a detention center. Finally, would make use of false documents by immigrants a felony offense. So all of a sudden we're starting to get the idea that somehow if we can accuse them of a felony, then we can put them in jail for long stretches of time. Now, Californians voted 59 to 41% to approve Proposition 187. Right. There was a lot, of, a lot of people who protested against it, of course. Uh, it's just a uh, referendum, but, um, um, but when they tried to put it into force, a federal judge, Mariana Falser, 
issued a permanent injunction against the state um, because the law uh, for immigration can only be enacted by the federal government, not by the states. Okay, that's constitutional violation right there. And the second thing is that the Supreme Court 1982 case, Plyler v. Doe, struck down a Texas statute to denying funding for education to undocumented immigrant children. The Supreme Court decision then made it illegal for any public school official to exclude undocumented children from K through 12 education, which is exactly what this proposition was trying to do. It's clearly unconstitutional, and most of the Californians who voted for it knew it wasn't going to pass muster, that it was going to be you know, banned by the courts, which it was. But it was to send a message to the federal government that you know, enough is enough. We're really tired of having all these Mexicans come into our state. But the most draconian legislation ever against undocumented immigrants uh, came from the House of Representatives in 2005. And that was the so-called Sensenbrenner Bill called the Border Protection Anti-Terrorism and Illegal Immigration Control Act of 2005. So you can see how it's all rolled together now. We've got border protection, anti-terrorism, and illegal immigration, and we need to control it, all in the title of the bill. It made it the illegal presence in the United States an aggregated felony, folks, instead of a civil offense. You know what this means? It means that if you're an undocumented immigrant and you were picked up by the law, you would be subject to sentencing guidelines similar to those for murder, rape, and sexual abuse of a minor. Okay, This for coming into the United States with uh, a visa, a six-month six tourist visa, and letting it expire. You have now become a felon. When Sensenbrenner introduced the bill, he said this, the bill will help restore the integrity of our nation's borders and reestablish respect for our laws by holding violators accountable, including employers who hire illegal aliens and alien gang members who terrorize communities. Because okay, so that was 2005. The rhetoric really hasn't changed that much since then, right? You know, gang members, criminals, the, the usual suspects. H.R. Uh, 4437 easily passed in the Republican-dominated House. Easily passed. I mean, we're talking about... 92% of the Republicans in favor and 82% of Democrats opposed. The bill passed with flying colors, okay? Then it goes to the Senate. If the Senate passes, it goes to the president, who was George W. Bush. Right? He's not known as an anti-immigrant kind of president, so I'm guessing sort of uh, counterfactually that he probably would have vetoed it, but it didn't get that far. Why? Because... Over 3 million immigrants and native-born Americans organized marches in over 120 cities from March to May 1st, the, and therefore the bill died in the Senate. The Senate wouldn't even touch it after they saw this. This, um, this picture over here on the right here is uh, uh, Los Angeles protest 2006, the largest protest in its history, much larger than any civil rights protest in the 60s. Okay? They're saying we are not criminals. They are people who broke the law, to be sure, right? They came here without and let their visas expire and stayed. But they're not criminals in the sense that, you know, when you exceed the speed limit, you don't think of yourself as a criminal or if you're driving with an expired driver's license that you're a criminal, which is the point that they were trying to make. Um, unfortunately, um, that later that year, 2006, Bush signed the Secure Fence Act authorizing the building of a 700-mile fence that Sensenbrenner had proposed. That's how we got that bill. The rallying cry for the marchers all over the United States that spring 2007 was, Hoy marchamos, mañana votamos. Today we march, tomorrow we vote. 
And vote they did. 2008, overwhelmingly, for Barack Obama over McCain, right? And then again in 2012. 2016 is another story, but we'll leave that for the Q&A or for somebody else who you know, wants to analyze uh, voting, which we've had a number of speakers here at the center who've done a lot of that. <clears throat> the last thing I want to talk about is Arizona Senate Bill 1070, Papers, Please. This authorized police to demand papers proving citizenship um, or immigration status from anyone they stop and suspect of being in the country unlawfully. So if you get pulled over by a policeman because you have a taillight out, if you look foreign or look like a Mexican, uh, they could ask you to show that proof of citizenship or legal lawful residence. This is what we call racial profiling. It was a license to racial profile. As one Latino put it, the public identification of illegal aliens with persons of Mexican ancestry is so strong that many Mexican Americans and other Latino citizens are presumed to be foreign and illegal. Copycat bills of this bill, which passed, by the way, were introduced in state legislatures across the South and passed in Alabama, Georgia, Indiana, and South Carolina. Later the same year, Arizona went a step further and banned Mexican-American studies classes from the Tucson Independent School District, and that passed as well. Okay? No ethnic studies, because they said it was empowering Chicanos and La Raza and Mexican-Americans to be proud and all that. And, and the studies were showing that it was helping the Latinos to stay in school and, not, and to graduate, but the white folks said it was anti-white and teaching them that white people bad, brown people good. Uh, so they, they passed the law that says uh, these ethnic studies classes promote the overthrow of the federal government, um, which I don't know where they got that from, uh, promotes resentment towards a, an, any race or class, um, and advocates ethnic solidarity. So these nativist reactions to demographic changes wrought by half a century unprecedented levels of Mexican immigration, from Operation Wetback in 1954 to numerous state initiatives to deny undocumented immigrants basic human rights and civil rights, from border fences, patrols, and aerial drones, to the push for a 2,000-mile border wall, all illustrate that America continues to regard Mexicans and other immigrants, especially today from Muslim-majority countries, as existential threats to the nation's security, as well as to its identity as an Anglo-Protestant nation. Um, in, uh, according to exit polls, 60% of Trump voters believed immigration was the most important issue facing the country. Five days after he was uh, sworn into uh, office, many of you know this, he issued executive orders directing the construction of a wall uh, with the U.S.-Mexican border and boasting the, uh, boosting the Border Patrol forces and increasing the number of immigrant enforcement officers. He also ordered um, calls for he, uh, executive orders calling for the stripping of sanctuary cities of federal grant funding and announced new criteria to make more undocumented immigrants priorities for deportation, more than under the Obama administration, which in eight years deported three million undocumented immigrants, more than any other president in our nation's history. Trump wants to outdo Obama as the importer-in-chief, deporter-in-chief. Muslims have been targets of nativist uh, laws and initiatives, especially after 9-11, which explains why one, one of President's executive orders excluded included the controversial ban on immigration from seven, uh, now down to six, Muslim-majority countries. So I'm going to conclude with some thoughts I have, um, a very few concluding thoughts here, um, uh, broad, not very deep, maybe not even very thoughtful, but immigration is now at the core of American politics as it was in the 19th century and the 1920s. 
We are witnessing a widespread growing white backlash against immigration, especially among working class whites. That's real news, isn't it? Many whites believe that immigrants are another undeserving minority and that the government uh, uh, elites um, uh, have ignored economic stress of working class whites. The zero-sum belief that any gain for uh, immigrants is a loss for native-born Americans. And finally, the browning of America and the rise of white ethno-nationalism are fueling larger racial and partisan divides about who the real Americans are um, and who the truly deserving Americans are. So at this point, I want to queue up the doors for this is the end, my beautiful friend, um, kind of the apocalyptic uh, uh, kind of ideas that ethno-nationals have about the United States. And, uh, um, and and I want to say thank you very much. But also before I, I close, I want to say this before we go to Q&A. You know, I sympathize with working class Americans who blame globalization and political in, uh, indifference to their economic gains. I don't share their view that immigrants are wrecking the country or are to blame for their reduced economic circumstances. And I absolutely don't look back with nostalgia to a bygone era when America was less tawny, less swarthy, less Mexican, Middle Eastern, and Muslim. The message of these books, um, message of these books and dozens of others have resonated since the 1990s for many Americans whose votes finally put someone in the White House who they believe can do what no other president has been willing or able to do. Like bring back coal and steel and automobile manufacturing and to make America great again, like it was for generations of their working class immigrant ancestors. But how is he going to do that? How is he going to deport 11 million undocumented immigrants? How is he going to build a 2,000 mile wall on the border and make Mexico pay for it? Or how is he going to induce whites to have more babies? Or for that matter, to bring back ketchup? Thank you. <laughs> So that's it for this summer session. A big thank you to Professor Neil Foley for coming here to the LSE. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron, that's me, with contributions from co-hosts Chris Gilson and Sophie Donselman. This event was part of our America and Global Perspective series and was supported by the British Association for American Studies and the U.S. Embassy in London. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. They're the bee's knees. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Tune in next time when we'll hear from Professor Tali Mendelberg asking, do American universities promote income inequality? Thanks for listening. <laughs>